Before we begin, a content warning. This episode includes discussions of the Holocaust and Hitler. In December, one of my housemates texted a picture in our group chat of a board game called Secret Hitler that she received as a holiday gift. I'd never heard of this game, and the idea of a board game that had anything to do with Hitler made me uncomfortable, especially as a Jew with family who died in the Holocaust. I grew up hearing stories about survivors and reading about concentration camps. We talked about Hitler and the Holocaust all the time in my Hebrew school. Our parents didn't want us to forget it. So hearing that something meant for a fun night with friends was about Hitler made me confused and upset. But it also made me want to know more. Secret Hitler made me wonder, is it ever ethical to situate entertainment like a game within the Holocaust? Is it possible to make a board game that teaches about tragedy or history or a political system in a way that works? What would that even look like? To answer those questions, I took a deep dive into Secret Hitler and some other games, including one of the most well-known games in the country, whose real story was buried. From the Daily Northwestern, I'm Susanna Kemp, and this is Pod Culture, a podcast covering arts and entertainment on and around Northwestern's campus. Secret Hitler was released in 2016 and is part of this genre of games called social deduction, where players try to uncover each other's hidden roles. The game's three creators developed the game right here in Chicago. Only one of them is Jewish. Back in January, my house played Secret Hitler. I wanted to see what it was all about. One of my housemates had played before, and she explained it to us all. You will either be a liberal Mm -hmm. or you will be a fascist. The fascists win if they enact three... Fascist policies. Here are the basics. Everyone picks an envelope at the beginning of the game, and inside is a card that assigns them a role. One of the cards says Hitler, another says fascist, and all the others say liberal. Then we all close our eyes, and the fascist and Hitler open their eyes to identify one another. So no one knows who's who, except for Hitler and the fascist. Each round, someone is assigned to be the president, and the players also elect a chancellor. These are roles you have in addition to your other roles as fascist, liberal, or Hitler. Each round, the president draws three policy cards that only they look at. These cards say either liberal or fascist on them. So let's say I start as president and I'm a fascist and I know that Hannah is Hitler. Hitler. And I'm going to say, I elect Hannah as chancellor. We don't know anything because the game's just started. You all vote, yeah. And then I get this hand, liberal, fascist, fascist. I discard one. The president discards one card and passes the remaining two to the chancellor, who looks at both in secret, then picks one of the policies to publicly pass. And then I would give the other two to Hannah. And then everyone would go, ah, what was in your hand? And you would say that you had no choice. And then you'd all look to me and be like, what the hell? <laughs> you gave her two fascist cards? What were your three cards? And I would say, oh, I got fascist. three fascist cards. I had no what? choice. So if you're a fascist, you win if you pass six fascist policies, or if you pass three and Hitler is also elected chancellor. If you're a liberal, you win by enacting five liberal policies or by killing Hitler. The liberals win! Yeah! yeah. Okay, so that's my roommates and I playing. We're talking in German accents. Are you fascist? What? <laughs> Nine. We're laughing. What's your liberal policy? Is it free public education? <laughs> Healthcare for all. Housing for all. Education for all. And I had a really good time. And I was Hitler. It felt wrong to pretend to be Hitler, but not as much as I would have expected. 
I wasn't sure if the game trivialized the Holocaust or not, and I was wondering why the creators decided to make this game about Hitler, because nothing about the game is very specific to fascism. The policy cards don't include any real historical info. They're just labeled fascist or liberal. In fact, Secret Hitler is so unspecific to fascism that there are spin-offs of the game that situate it in different contexts. I was curious if anyone else had thought about this, so I talked to some people who had played. One of them was Elon Blackwell. He's a communication junior at Northwestern and part of a team called Mark IV Games that's working to develop a game called Factions of Soul. There is a version of Secret Hitler that we used to play at my church, actually, called Secret Voldemort, which is the exact same game, except it's with Voldemort and Death Eaters from, you know, Harry Potter. But, you know, Secret Hitler is obviously fraught with a lot more historical complexity than Secret Voldemort. In other words, Secret Hitler doesn't really need to be about Hitler. I think it's probably just good, like, flavor for the game. That's Noelle Palmer, another student I chatted with who'd played Secret Hitler. She's a Weinberg second year. You need a good design point to, like, make your game around. You need something that's eye-catching. What's more eye-catching than (laughs) Hitler? Could making this game about Hitler just be a marketing ploy? Is it possible that a few guys would decide to center a game around a violent dictator just because that game would be, like Palmer said, eye-catching? Turns out, that's not really the case. One of Secret Hitler's three creators, Tommy Morangis, agreed to chat with me. In 2015, he had a desk at a co-working space in Chicago. So did this other guy, Mike Boxleiter. We were playing a lot of Avalon at the time, which is a game that's in the same genre as Secret Hitler. Then afterwards, he and I would sort of sit around wondering, like, why does this work? Why is this fun? One Monday, he came in, eyes kind of on fire, and he was like, so I just binge-watched Brand of Brothers all weekend. And it made me think, what if we made the game about World War II? How would that change the mechanics, the dynamics? And that was the birth of Secret Hitler. Within about 72 hours, we had a pretty close prototype. So the game's Hitler theme actually came before the creators decided on any rules or gameplay, not after. But using Hitler was a way to make a more interesting social deduction game than we'd played before, Moranji says. Social deduction is an inherently political genre. It's about a well-coordinated minority working in secret to overthrow or subvert the will of a less coordinated, easily confused majority. The games that had explored that before used pretty bland contexts to explore that, right? The resistance is a really popular one, but there's just a resistance and some spies. And you don't know, is this like a people's resistance? Is this a crypto-fascist resistance? I think that social deduction in particular lends itself to saying something about what it is we're doing when we work together or when we're performing politics. I asked Morangis what he hopes people get out of the game. Social deduction games have helped him gain an awareness of his own difficulty separating manipulation from morality. And he hopes Secret Hitler works in the same way for players. I personally have the experience playing social deduction games of being really surprised at how bad I am at recognizing when I'm being lied to, when people are telling me what I want to hear. I think it's really easy to look back in history and say, well, obviously I would have been on the right side of history. Moranges wants this game to make you wonder. If you were living during a historical period that had clear bad guys and good guys, who would you have been? Is that actually what people think when they're playing Secret Hitler? For some, maybe it is. And for others, not really. 
In 2019, a Jewish-Australian group, the Anti-Defamation Commission, asked Amazon to stop selling the game, which it didn't do. They argued that the game normalized Hitler's behavior. But on the other hand, some Jews were grateful for this game. We've heard from Jewish groups who have reached out to thank us for making the game. We've heard from rabbis who want to take the game with them on birthright trips to play along the way. For those who may not know, birthright is a free trip to Israel for young Jewish adults. There were also conflicting opinions about the game among senators. In 2017, the secret Hitler team sent the game to the 100 members of the U.S. Senate for free. We heard from some Senate offices that the interns kind of fought over who got to keep it, and it became really popular. We had some offices send it back. And when Morangis and his co-creators were testing the game, some people loved playing it, but didn't think the game was explicitly anti-fascist enough. People did tell us that they felt uncomfortable playing a fascist with no in-game indication that the fascists were the bad guys. And so that informed our decision to make the fascists reptiles. Morangis is talking about game design here. On the role assignment cards, the fascists are reptiles and the liberals are humans. In other parts of the game, like on the policy cards, the fascist party is represented by a skull and the liberal party symbol is a bird. It looks like maybe a dove or an eagle. But some people didn't think this design did enough to signal that fascism was unacceptable. We shipped the game out finally in December of 2016. People said they didn't like the fascists were lizards because it suggested that fascists were this evil other and no human could be a fascist. I think we would have to be pretty daft to think that no one was going to get upset about it. It's possible that some people would have been more on board with Secret Hitler if there was a more clear indication that the game was anti-fascist. But this gets back to our original question about games based in reality. Would the game be fun if it was more informational? I think that if I were trying to make a game that primarily had a message, it would not be fun. No one likes to feel preached to in a medium that is not a sermon. In other words, games should be fun, and they shouldn't just be pushing a message, Moranji says. But are there any games that really do get a message across and are also popular? I want to dive into the story of one game you've probably played before. It's a game whose creator wanted to make a political point, but the original politics of the game have gotten a little buried over the past century. I'm talking about Monopoly. Mary Pallon wrote a book in 2015 called The Monopolist about the secret history of the game. It all came out of some reporting she was doing for the Wall Street Journal in 2009. In 2009, the economy was in total disarray, and so a lot of people were drawing comparisons to Depression-era you know, pastimes, movies, pop culture. Like Monopoly. And I was going to mention in passing, oh, Monopoly was invented during the Great Depression because that was the story that was tucked into the game box that my family had and, you know, countless others. The pamphlet in the game box said for many years that the game was created by Charles Darrow. But that wasn't really true. And I looked around, I looked around, it wasn't adding up. So she used this reporting trick. You call folks who are involved in litigation because if you're suing someone or being sued by them, you might know something. She called up Ralph Onsbach. He created this game called Anti-Monopoly, where players could break up monopolies. Parker Brothers was the board game company distributing Monopoly at the time, and they brought a trademark infringement case against Onsbach in 1974. And while he was preparing for the case, Onsbach uncovered this Monopoly backstory that Parker Brothers had buried. The story of Elizabeth or Lizzie McGee. Monopoly actually started out as a landlord's game, and Lizzie McGee invented it in the early 1900s. As a teaching tool to teach against the, the horrors of capitalism. 
Unlike the secret Hitler creators who are really designing a game just for the sake of designing a game, Lizzie McGee created the Landlord's Game to present a solution to a problem that she thought a lot of people didn't understand. She wanted to present the evils of some people accumulating extreme wealth at the expense of others, and to imagine a world in which everyone could be rewarded when wealth was created. She structured the game around land value taxation, which tends to produce a lot less inequality. And Ralph Onspach actually argued in his case that he was bringing back the original monopoly. And eventually, he won. This really nutty lawsuit in the 1970s from this economist who was trying to make anti-monopoly games unearthed the whole true history of the game. Lizzie McGee created her game with two sets of rules. One was similar to the monopolist rules we use now, and the other employed the concept of land value taxation. She wanted people to play both games, observe the contrast, and think something along the lines of, oh, capitalism sucks, and we, the 99%, are getting very screwed over. I think she's a fascinating woman. You can't separate her from the story of Monopoly. I think she is the pulse of it. McGee was born in 1866, and she led a life that was really unusual for women of her time. She supported herself through work as a stenographer and secretary, but she also performed comedy routines and wrote poetry and short stories on the side. She married late, too, and mocked marriage very publicly. In 1903, she applied for a patent for the Landlord's Game, and it spread. People started creating their own versions of the game, and some people actually used it as a teaching tool. It was played at Harvard, it was played at Wharton. When you look at who was playing it in those days, it's like this who's who of left-wing America. So Upton Sinclair had played the game. This one guy, Charles Darrow, took the version of the game that was circulating in Atlantic City to Parker Brothers in 1933. He was unemployed, and Parker Brothers was on the brink of bankruptcy. He got rich, and Parker Brothers stayed in business. They created the narrative that Darrow was the original inventor. I should know here that McGee brought the game to Parker Brothers in 1924, nine years before they started distributing Darrow's version. They told McGee her version was too political. Even though we only play the monopolist version of McGee's game, that doesn't mean her original aim of exposing capitalism's horrors was lost. When I started reporting what would become the book, I was also covering Occupy Wall Street, which, you know, was a huge encampment. And I would see the Mr. Monopoly image as part of the protest signs. And I still see it you know, in LA or New York, like now the imagery from the board is often used in this very cartoonish way to kind of poke fun at Wall Street and, and rich people. <laughs> the first time I saw that, I thought, oh, well, that would make Lizzie McGee proud, right? She was trying to change the political conversation. People are still using the game as this prop in conversations about things like corporate power and economic inequity. And Pallon thinks that we can learn a lot from Monopoly. The Atlantic City version board that we use today, for example, reflects the city segregation in the late 1920s and early 1930s. The Quakers, who were predominantly white, lived in these gated communities. The boardwalk of Atlantic City was incredibly segregated, and they had black housekeepers who lived on Baltic and Mediterranean. Those are the lower-priced properties in Monopoly. Atlantic City was a receiving station for a huge influx of black Americans who were moving to the north to seek better opportunities only to find that the same kind of Jim Crow policies that were so oppressive in the South existed up North as well. I think that board games, we don't think of them as cultural artifacts the way we do film and books and movie. And I think that that's a mistake, that they are works of art and they are things that are created of their time and we should analyze them, think about them critically. If you want to learn something from a game, Palan is suggesting you just have to be curious and do some research or Googling. But the irony of McGee's game that she made this anti-monopolist teaching tool and instead a monopolist version caught on, still made me think. 
Lizzie McGee's original version of Monopoly likely morphed into the Monopolist version in part because a competitive game is more fun than one where everyone wins. And Secret Hitler has likely been successful in part because it doesn't include a lot of historical details that could slow down gameplay. But are there any games rooted in history or politics that haven't significantly evolved away from their original version? I spoke to David Rapp when I was researching this piece. He's a professor in the psychology and learning sciences departments at Northwestern, and he's a big board game nerd. For a period of time, I had an absolutely enormous collection, like top 10 people probably in the Midwest number of games. Maybe that's exaggerating, it was a lot. And then he met these people who design games, and he got interested in how to make games. He mentioned around 15 games during our conversation that I'd never heard of, including a bunch of war games. There's actually a big war game culture. Like Secret Hitler, a lot of them are about World War II. But unlike Secret Hitler, these games tend to physically represent war with a board that's a map. One of these games that came out more recently, in 2005, is Twilight Struggle. That's about the Cold War, and one side plays the US, and one side plays the USSR, and you learn a lot about the history, and there are things that both governments do that aren't comfortable, and things that both governments do to support their sides. But that game is really good about extra detail about what happened in this history. Here we want you to learn about this Cold War situation. A card will have an action on it, but then underneath says the history of like what this card means. So how is this important to the Cold War? I want to put out here too that this is a game that people really like. It's currently ranked as the number one war game and number 10 overall game on the forum Board Game Geek. For comparison, Monopoly is in the 20,000s. So in these war games like Twilight Struggle, you're playing this game that's rooted in history, and someone's always going to need to play the bad guy. If anyone's playing a game where they're on the side of someone who is in that historical precedent, now what does that make them think? Good board game designers usually include some statement about why they're doing this, like this is a way to figure out the historical precedent of how things happened. We want to understand the campaigns and the military strategies. The pamphlet in the secret Hitler box does not include anything along those lines. And the closest thing on their website is a question in the Q&A section. I don't think there's anything funny or cool about fascism. Who can I complain to? And the answer is a list of U.S. senators and their contact info. Maybe you feel okay about playing the bad guy if you're learning something while you're doing it. I spoke to Kyle Noya, who's a Northwestern student in the psychology department. She studies video games. I have not played Secret Hitler in part because I was worried about like, is this game rewarding somebody being fascist? But she did have a thought about why it might feel okay to pretend to be someone evil, someone like Hitler, in a game. So the idea of like having to be a fascist and trying to trick people on its face is a little bit uncomfortable, but ultimately I think it's important that we have those kind of mental exercises. Like how does somebody end up using manipulation or whatever? We need to be able to recognize those signs in order to, when, if it happens in the real world, be able to recognize it for what it is. And she thinks that social deduction games like Secret Hitler give license to lie too. Social licensing is, we say like, okay, this thing's okay in this circumstance, even though if it wouldn't be universally okay. So the game context gives licensure to lie, deceive, manipulate people. For some people, that's enough. It's like, all right, it's all just a game. So now I'm going to use these skills. For other people, it's not enough. Noya, for example, doesn't like playing social deduction games where she has to lie because people in her life have compulsively lied to her. It all hits too close to home. I think maybe games like Monopoly are easier to play, even if you feel really passionate about lessening the economic divide, because you're not pretending to be any definitive person. 
you're a landlord buying up properties, but you're not that specific person who's charging you or who evicted a friend, for example. On the other hand, if someone asks if you want to play Secret Hitler, maybe you don't want to pretend to be Hitler or to see someone else pretending to be Hitler, no matter how the game is presented to you. If you're looking for something to do and want a game suggestion, let me tell you, David Rapp knows his stuff. I told him I liked word games, and he introduced me to a few games I might like. If you asked, I'm sure he'd give you a suggestion too. From the Daily Northwestern, I'm Susanna Kemp, and this has been Pod Culture. This episode was reported and produced by me. The audio editor of the Daily Northwestern is Madison Smith, the digital managing editor is Haley Fuller, and the editor-in-chief is Sneha Day.